it's Wednesday the 14th of February and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. North Korea fired multiple cruise missiles towards the East Sea on Wednesday morning, the fifth such launch this year. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. A survey of North Korean defectors has found that negative sentiment towards Kim Jong-un had been growing within the regime in recent years. We delve deeper into these findings for our in-depth today. And coming up on Korea Book Club, we discover The Owl Cries, another dark thriller by Pyonhaeyang. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. North Korea has carried out cruise missile launches once again. On Wednesday, multiple cruise missiles were fired towards the East Sea, marking the fifth such provocation this year. South Korea's military has responded with strengthened vigilance for more such hostile acts by the regime. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chen. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Zhang. So this is becoming a familiar sight. Can you fill us in on the details about the latest provocation by the North? Sure thing. On Wednesday, South Korea's JCS detected multiple missiles launched into waters northeast of Wonsan in North Korea's Gangwon province at around 9 a.m. The JCS has strengthened monitoring with close coordination with the United States, and the South Korean military is analyzing the details of the latest launch, including the range and flight time. The North's fifth cruise missile launch this year comes less than two weeks after Pyongyang conducted what it called a cruise missile super-large warhead power test and test-fired a new anti-aircraft missile. Going back to January 24th, it fired multiple missiles, new strategic cruise missiles, the Purasar 331, into the Yellow Sea. Four days after that, launched two of the missiles near its port city of Shinpo. On January 30th, it launched the Hwasar-2 strategic cruise missile toward the Yellow Sea. So observers believe such missile launches are to test the functions of the new weapons while letting the world know it's developing a wide range of weapons. Yes, we'll see what North Korea themselves reveal about this latest missile launch in state media over the next couple of days. Meanwhile, South Korea's top intelligence agency said a North Korean IT group operating overseas produced thousands of illegal gambling sites and sold them to South Korean uh, crime organizations. So what can you tell us about this latest revelation? So this is coming Wednesday. The NIS identified the group as Kyunghung Information Technology Exchange Company based in Dandong, China, under Office 39 of the North's ruling Workers' Party. Office 39 is known to manage secret funds of leader Kim Jong-un and his family. Fifty members of the organization have been producing gambling websites using a systematic division of labor, receiving $5,000 for each site and $3,000 a month for maintenance and repair. Each person sent $500 from the profits each month to Pyongyang. Crime organizations in South Korea continued business with the North Koreans because of low associated, associated costs. A North Korean IT workers stole a total of around 1,100 personal data points from users acquired when maintaining the gambling sites, and they even attempted to sell the stolen data. Okay, let's move on to other headlines now. President Yoon sung yeol has vowed to make South Korea the best country in the world to do business in. Can you 
tell us more about uh, where, where and when he made such comments and the context behind them. This is coming during Wednesday's luncheon meeting at the Korea Chamber of Commerce and Industry with heads of foreign investment companies. Yun vowed to create the best investment environment by scrapping regulations in line with global standards and expanding incentives. He thanked foreign investment firms for making a record investment of nearly $33 billion last year. Uh, of South Korea's ex- uh, Such companies account for 21% of South Korea's exports and are in charge of 6% of the nation's employment. The president emphasized it's the government's turn now to step up and unveil plans to spare no effort in providing various tax benefits and support to foreign companies for their active investment. In other news, a district court has sentenced Kim Manbe, a key figure in the Daejangdong development scandal, to two and a half years in prison. And Daniel understand that he is not alone. That's right. On Wednesday, the Suwon District Court issued the sentence while sentencing former city council chairman Choi Yoon-gil to four and a half years of wrongfully, for wrongfully passing a bill on establishing the Sangnam Development Corporation at Kim's request. The court did not have Kim and Choi remanded in custody, saying they are unlikely to destroy evidence and they had faithfully taken part in their trials. Kim was indicted on suspicion of providing 80 million won or around 60,000 U.S. dollars in bribes to Che in return for the former council chair passing the bill on the development corporation back in 2013. This is the first time Kim, facing multiple charges, got a guilty verdict. Last February, Kim was acquitted from charges of providing 5 billion won in bribes to former ruling PPP representative Kwak Sang-do in return for business favors. Let's turn to the latest regarding possible strike action by the nation's doctors in response to the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. An emergency committee of the South Korean Doctors Association plans to hold its first meeting this Saturday to discuss the appropriate measures. Can you tell us more? The chair of the emergency committee of the Korean Medical Association, Kim Tae-woo, announced the meeting at Wednesday's press conference. He said the government's argument for increasing the quota is unreasonable, as there is no negative impact from the country having a lower number of doctors per 1,000 people than the OECD average. As a country's 40 medical schools in the nation accept around 3,000 students, he said that increasing it by 2,000 is equivalent to creating 24 new medical schools, and this will adversely impact the quality of education. He also added that the spike will lead to an increase in the burden of medical costs as well. Let's turn to sports next. South Korean swimmer Hwang son has won a gold medal in the men's 200-metre freestyle at the World Aquatics Championships in Qatar, and he's made history. He is. Hwang finished first in the event at Aspire Dome in Doha on Wednesday with a time of 1 minute and 44.75 seconds. His third consecutive World Championships medal prior to this silver in the event in Budapest in 2022, bronze last year in Fukuoka. He is the first South Korean swimmer to win gold in the men's 200-meter freestyle, South Korea's fourth gold in the World Swimming Championships. Park Tae-hwan won the men's 400-meter freestyle back in 2007 and 2011. More recently, Kim Woo-min won the men's 400-meter freestyle on Monday in Doha. So, South Korea is confirmed to haul home at least two gold medals from the World Championships for the first time. Next, we turn to the economy. The state-run Career Development Institute has maintained its economic growth outlook for this year at 2.2%. This comes mainly thanks to the rise in exports, despite a slowdown in consumption and investment. Can you tell us more? That's right. The KDI revised forecast for 2024 is higher than 2.1% projected by the Bank of Korea, but lower than 2.3% forecast by the IMF. On Wednesday, the KDI said recovery in the semiconductor industry and the global economy will lead growth this year, upgrading its outlook for export increases to 4.7% from 38 
However, the institute expects domestic consumption to slow down, lowering its growth outlook for private consumption to 1.7% from 1.8%. Main external risk factors this year for Korea, geopolitical risks in the Middle East and the crisis in the Chinese real estate market. That's all for our news briefing today, Daniel. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index slid 29.22 points or 1.1% on Wednesday to close at 2,620.42. The tech-heavy COSDAQ climbed, gaining 8.15 points or 0.96% to close at 853.30. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 7.31 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,335.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about issues making headlines around the world. And for that, we have fitting in for Hijin. A sight for sore eyes, I would say. (laughs) Our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Let's get into our global headlines. First, we head to the United States to discuss politics. Ahead of the upcoming 2024 presidential elections in November in the US, both the Republican and Democratic parties have been battling it out over top political issues affecting the country, such as illegal immigration. Mm. And on Tuesday, a historic vote was made by the House of Representatives. Can you tell us more? Yes. The House of Representatives, by an exceedingly slim margin, voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the Biden administration's handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. This comes just one week after the Republican-led House of Representatives failed to impeach Mayorkas in what was seen as a stunning political setback. However, with 214 votes for and 213 against, Mayorkas on Tuesday became the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in roughly 150 years, following Secretary of War William Belknap in 1876. Yes, last week the Republican Party was dealt a blow after failing to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary on a day that saw Democratic Congressman for Texas Al Green leaving the hospital and going to the floor Mm. in hospital scrubs to vote no. Three Republicans also voted no. Was this still the case this time round? It was. The BBC and CNN reported that Tom McClintock of California, Ken Buck of Colorado and Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin all voted no once again, like they did last week, as the decision would not help tackle the border problem and instead would weaken the constitutional penalty. The response to this vote has also been mixed. Mia Ehrenberg, a spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security, said in a statement that House Republicans will be remembered by history for trampling on the Constitution for political gain rather than working to solve the serious challenges at our border. U.S. President Joe Biden also released a statement saying that Republicans targeted an honourable public servant in order to play petty political games. However, according to the BBC, Mike Johnson, the Republican Speaker of the House, believes that Mayorkas deserves to be impeached. Okay, now that the vote has been made, what's next for the Homeland Security Secretary? So now it goes to the Senate. As it is Democratic-led, there is a high possibility that it will fail. Yeah, so quite a tumultuous situation in the U.S., Mm. which I 
believe we will continue to follow mm. uh, with that second vote uh, at the uh, Senate as well. Next, let's turn to some space news. Mm. SpaceX, the American spacecraft company, was set to launch Odysseus. It's uh, intuitive machines lander on Wednesday. Right. That was not the case. Can you tell us what happened? Sure. So the private moon lander was scheduled to launch from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida at 12.57 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. However, the New York Times reported that the launch was delayed due to a temperature issue with the spacecraft's liquid methane fuel. On And on social media, SpaceX announced that it now plans to launch the rocket on a different day. Do we know when we might be seeing this new launch? Uh, Thursday, February 15th at 1.05am EST. This again could change if more issues are found or if weather conditions are not up to par. If that is the case, the launch will be uh, again delayed till February 16th. According to reports, the company only has a three-day window to start the mission, otherwise it will have to wait another month. If the launch is successful, it will look to become the first American spacecraft to land on the moon's surface since 1972, following the Apollo 17 moon landing. So it would be an important milestone if successful. Can you tell us more about what's on board the rocket? Sure. So according to the New York Times, NASA is the main customer for the Intuitive Machines flight. It is paying the company over $100 million to deliver its payloads via the lander. This includes a laser retroreflector array to bounce back laser beams fired from Earth, a LiDAR instrument to measure the spacecraft's altitude and velocity as it arrives on the lunar surface. Uh, it also includes a stereo camera to capture video of the plume of the dust kicked up by the lander's engine during landing. Reports also say that if the launch occurs this week, the landing will be on February 22nd. So all eyes will be on the launch site to see if the mission will be successful. OK, let's swiftly move on to our final story and it's involving mm-hmm. sports and the South Korean men's national football team. Uh, yes. It's Related to South Korea, but this is a story that has gone uh, gone global and actually first emerged from a UK uh, media outlet, right? That's correct. On Tuesday local time, British news outlets The Sun and The Daily Mail reported that an argument between two of the biggest stars on the national team, Captain Son Heung-min and midfielder Yi Gang-in, took place a day before the Asian Cup semi-final match against Jordan last week. Initially, the Sun cited a source who said that Sun sustained a finger injury while trying to calm other players down during a brawl over some players wanting to play ping pong. Later in the day, a a high-ranking official at the Korea Football Association confirmed that an incident took place and that KFA chairman Chung Mong-gyu is also aware of the altercation. Right, since the confirmation was made, more information has come to light, right. which perhaps tells a different story than the initial reports made uh, by the UK outlets. Right, that is correct. Further reports came out saying that E was one of three younger members of the team who finished the dinner quickly in order to play table tennis. Other players who were eating heard the three and felt offended. News outlets also said that Sun went there to stop them from playing, and that is when an altercation took place. Sun grabbed E's collar and E retaliated by trying to punch the captain, but missed. Others tried to separate the two stars, and that is when Sun's finger was dislocated. Uh, following the incident, senior members of the team, including Sun, went to head coach Jürgen Klinsmann to request that E be excluded from the semi-final roster. Yes, yeah, so this will be a big issue for Klinsman, who has already been hearing growing calls to resign over his lack of leadership. And mm. this uh, news hints at a deeper issue within the team. Right. And understand that uh, 
there's been some breaking news about one of the players coming out to make a comment. There has. Yi Gangin has come out to make a comment on social media. So Yi apologised to fans for his behaviour and added that he will try to help the older players of the national team and become a better person. OK, we'll have to leave it there for our Global News Roundup. Richard, thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you. Claudia Cardenas, Taekwondo world medalist from Ecuador and founder of Himchari Dubujang. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. South Korea's Unification Ministry recently released the results of a comprehensive 10-year survey of over 6,000 North Korean defectors, detailing the reality of economic and social conditions within North Korea. Among the findings, it found that the negative assessment of Kim Jong-un as a political leader has grown over time, coupled with doubts about whether the reclusive state's succession system is legitimate. It also found that consumption of foreign media was growing before the pandemic. To discuss the survey in more detail, we have joining us on the line today, Ifang Bremer, the Seoul correspondent for NK News. Mr. Bremer, hello and welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. For our listeners, could you give us details about the survey itself? How was it conducted and who participated and how the information was gathered? So what's interesting about this survey is that actually... Um, used to be a classified document. So um, the Ministry of Unification conducted um, about 800 interviews per year uh, over over a 10-year period with North Korean defectors, many of whom had only just arrived. So these defectors would be interviewed by the ministry quite quickly after they came into South Korea. Uh, And recently the UN administration decided to uh, declassify this document and release it to the public. And as you said before, it's a sample size of more than 6,000 defectors. So yeah, that's that's quite a lot. um, If you think that there are roughly 30,000 defectors in South Korea at the moment. Right. So 6,000 defectors over a 10-year period, I believe it was between 2013 and 2022. So then what did the survey show? Can you tell us about this interesting development that we've seen about the negative view towards Kim Jong-un as a leader. Can you tell us more about that? So according to the report released by the ministry, some 51% of North Korean defectors who defected after Kim Jong-un took power uh, back in 2012 responded that they had negative views of uh, Chairman Kim. And among these, if we look at North Koreans who escaped more recently between 2016 and 2020, this slightly increases to uh, 56%. Um, and we have to be a little bit careful because, of course, these are people who have left North Korea. Mm. Therefore, we can assume that they were already unhappy in North Korea. Uh, this survey doesn't say anything about the people who are still in North Korea. And we cannot, unfortunately, ask how they feel about uh, Kim Jong-un, of course. 
Right, but by interviewing the defectors, we perhaps get a glimpse of what uh, the North Koreans within the regime might be thinking as well. And there is a trend, it seems, that the negative sentiment towards Kim Jong-un has been growing uh, since he came to power. So what do the respondents all say about uh, the family, uh, the Kim family power succession? Because I understand there's been a shift there as well. Yes, so according to the survey, the defectors who escaped the country between uh, 2011 and 2020 showed an increasing level of skepticism uh, towards this system, uh, the PEC2 bloodline, you know, the system that um, says that um, the the Kim Jong the Kim uh, regime is basically uh, a bloodline regime, right? So the ruling of North Korea will stay within that family, uh, and it gives lifelong political power to Kim Il Sung's uh, descendants, the, the founder of North Korea. Uh, so more than 50% of defectors who left the North between 2016 and 2020 expressed negative sentiments about the succession system. And that's slightly higher than the 42% who escaped uh, between 2011 and 2015. So, yeah, um, in more recent years, there seem to be more people who are unhappy about this system, the way in which the ruling of North Korea is being passed on within this family. So that's quite interesting. Right. Is there any... uh information on why there might be discontent among North Koreans towards this uh, hereditary succession of the leadership in North Korea? Uh, it's not quite clear from the survey, but we do know that under Kim Jong-un, you know, the, the, the North Korean government has become even stricter on its citizens' movements. So um, the borders, uh, both on the side with China, um, as well as its coastal borders, have been strengthened. Uh, in the past year, and Kim Jong-un has definitely made it uh, <clears throat> one of his priorities to, you know, um, really crack down on anything that he seems uh, could be a threat to uh, the North Korean totalitarian system. So these could be factors that have contributed to people being more um, yeah, against this uh, the system of peck to bloodline succession. Um, but that's a little bit of speculation mm. uh, because the results can also be a little bit skewed by where the defectors are from. So the ministry said that defectors from Pyongyang are more likely to be critical on the regime than defectors who come from a remote area near the Chinese border. Um, and that is because the people coming from more remote areas, close to the Chinese border, for example, have more likely defected for economic reasons and not so much because they were so unhappy with the regime, for example. So it really depends on where these people are from as well. I see. So that's another interesting trend. Uh, The survey also showed some other things uh, about North Koreans uh, that we found interesting. The survey showed that there was growth in the consumption of foreign media in the years uh, immediately before the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you elaborate more on this finding as well? Uh, what's caused the increase in foreign media consumption? Yeah, so the ministry asked um, 4,790 defectors about their media consumption habits. Wow, in North Korea, that is. Um, and more than 83% of, of SKPs who left North Korea between 2016 and 2020 said they, at some point, 
had access to foreign media, such as you know music, TV shows, and this is up from 67 percent. Uh, of the North Koreans who left the country between 2006 and 2010. Now, um, actually, this is quite, you know, not really a big surprise because um, the increase of foreign media coincides with the rise of smaller data storage devices such as USB sticks, uh, SD cards. Mm. The smaller thing, those things are the easier it is to get that into the country. Um, and it also coincides with the rise of digital media, which is just you know, much easier to copy and spread. So, yes, um, it's 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 an interesting um, increase, but it's also not so surprising considering that worldwide, you know, uh, media has been more accessible just because of uh, the changing technology. Sure. Can you remind our listeners why this would be significant? Why is the increase in consumption of foreign media uh, important for uh, North Korea when we talk about North Korea? Well, foreign media is very restricted in North Korea. Actually, North Koreans are not allowed to access most of the foreign media, especially not South Korean uh, dramas and music. Um, foreign media can inform North Koreans about the world outside of North Korea. And the spread of those um, foreign dramas or TV shows or films shows that you know this information monopoly of the regime is not waterproof and kim jong-un is quite convinced i believe that um the information dissemination is the achilles heel of his regime you know if people know what life is like outside of the border it might make them more uh, prone to uh, stand up and maybe wonder why things are the way they are in north korea which is often much worse than elsewhere. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's why we should definitely pay attention to this. Right, and you said it was tightly controlled. What happens to a defector who gets caught watching, say, for example, South Korean videos in North Korea? Uh, how do they get caught, and then what happens if they are caught? Well, the report cites one defector whose laptop was confiscated after the authorities discovered foreign media on it, but... That defector escaped North Korea in 2017, and I imagine that punishments are actually much more severe now. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> they, uh, North Korea implemented a law in 2020 um, focused on rejecting the reactionary ideology and culture, uh, according to that law, basically banning the distribution and watching of media uh, originating from South Korea and the U.S. and some other countries. And since that law, the punishments are much more harsh. So if you spread, for example, South Korean dramas in North Korea, you could be sentenced to death. Um, But if you are caught with listening to, I don't know, let's say a Chinese song, which is politically less sensitive, I imagine that the sentence would be a bit different. Uh, But still, you could be sent to either re-education camp um, or worse. Right. I understand earlier this year, the BBC published footage showing uh, allegedly two North Korean teenagers being sentenced to 12 years hard labour for watching Korean dramas. What do we know about that? Well, that's uh, it's, it's extremely rare footage. Right? So we know uh, from North Korea, from state media, that this new law that really 
cracks down on foreign media consumption has been implemented, but we didn't really have any evidence of how it would be implemented in practice. So this video, which allegedly showed two teenagers being punished, sent to a labor camp, um, is very shocking uh, because it actually shows that North Korea is um, <clears throat> acting on what it said it would do, which is extreme punishments for what in most other parts of the world would be considered either not a crime or a very, very minor crime. So that's very shocking and very rare to get that footage out there. And uh, frankly, I think there should be more of that footage out there, uh, but it's uh, it's extremely difficult to you know, smuggle this kind of uh, information out of the country, especially when it involves footage that North Korea doesn't want the, the outside world to, to be seen. So in the survey, we saw a trend that foreign media consumption was growing, but the survey largely covers the time frame before the pandemic and before this uh, new law uh, comes into effect. So I guess the situation now could be quite different again. Yeah, that's, that's definitely possible. And I think well, experts tell me that this law was definitely implemented because of the pervasiveness of foreign media. So uh, Kim Jong-un saw that you know people are consuming South Korean dramas, maybe movies from China, uh, and so forth. And he thought, okay, we need a new system to be able to crack down. It's harder to really scare people and not uh, yeah, consuming anything other than North Korean stuff. So um, I think that's the context of why it was implemented, actually, because it was spreading too fast, likely. Right. And it also occurred during the pandemic where overall uh, border controls were tightened and there was a crackdown uh, from the regime uh, during this time as well. That's all part of this uh, effort uh, to tighten uh, the control, right? Yes, yes, yes. Definitely anything coming into North Korea has been strictly controlled since 2020, much more than before. And North Korea has also increased, according to uh, reporting by me and my colleagues, uh, the, the number of fences and the number of cameras along uh, all sides of the border, actually, just to prevent anything from coming in or out uh, of the country. Uh, and that's very, very sad news for anyone in North Korea who wants to defect. And North Korea, has, at least Kim Jong-un, has really used this pandemic window to you know, um, increase the borders to the extent that he always wanted, which is almost complete control over uh, movement in the country. Right. So while things have dramatically uh, changed in the last couple of years or so with that crackdown, uh, still the survey, I think, uh, reveals some interesting uh, glimpses into the regime. As a final question, what do you, you think the survey results suggest about perhaps the stability of the Kim Jong-un regime? What overall conclusions uh, were you able to reach? Well, we, I think, first of all, I mean, I have to caveat a little bit. We should be careful to draw conclusions from the survey um, for the whole of North Korea, right? So these are people who have left North Korea and they were asked questions by North Korea's rival, South Korea. Uh, so these are all factors that contribute to how people might answer questions. Um, but at the same time, uh, you can definitely say that this survey shows the power of um, media and information and also the power of art uh, into 
threatening totalitarian regimes uh, to the extent that they deem it necessary to put death sentences on spreading that media, right? So um, <clears throat> definitely, I think uh, it's interesting to see a sample size of 6,000 detectors reflect what researchers were already suspecting, that the impact of you know, K-dramas, Chinese movies, Russian movies, um, perhaps in rare cases even American movies, definitely impact uh, North Korea and uh, make it very difficult for the, for Kim Jong-un to remain this information monopoly. Indeed, it's an interesting uh, sample, as we said, uh, uh, an interesting survey. It would be fascinating to see surveys of more recent years, especially in light of the pandemic. Perhaps that will be coming later, but still, uh, so far at the moment, it's a fascinating uh, insight nonetheless. We'll leave it there with speaking to Ifang Bremer from NK News. Thank you once again for your time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Did you know that Korea 24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea 24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea 24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea 24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload film versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media. to Korea Book Club, our weekly segment where we explore the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and beyond. As ever, joining me in the studio, I'm delighted to say that we have literary critic Barry Welsh with us once more. Barry, hello. It's great to see you. Yes, hi. It's great to be here. Okay, so what do you have in store for us this week? So this week we're reviewing a newly translated novel called The Owl Cries by Pyon Hae Young. The Korean title is Sochok Supe Katta, which translates as Went to the Western Forest. So Korean title and the English title is a little bit different. Uh, the Korean edition was published in 2012, and this English translation by Pyon's regular translator Sora Kim Russell was just published in October uh, and Pyon's work is renowned for its psychological depth its haunting narratives and she has of course established herself as a, a formidable voice in uh, contemporary Korean and now global literature so born in Seoul in 1972 she uh, pursued her passion for storytelling at Hanyang University where she completed a bachelor's in creative writing and a master's in Korean literature uh, and her works include short story collections such as to the Kennels and Evening Courtship and novels which we've uh, I think we've reviewed all her novels on the show so uh, City of Ash and Red The Lot of Lines and The Whole 
and uh, she at this point now is you know recognised for her contribution to Korean literature and has been honoured with several of the big awards the Hanguk Ilbo uh, Literary Award the Lee Hyo Sok Literature Prize and the whole uh, clinched the Shirley Jackson Award in 2017 and so very highly regarded at this point and her storytelling is marked by a, a very, you know, a perhaps almost unique ability to blend the mundane with the uncanny uh, and creating worlds and stories that are at once familiar and deeply unsettling. Uh, her ca- characters are, are often uh, meticulously crafted creations and often placed in situations that compel them to confront their uh, deepest fears or darkest desires. Uh, and with the Owl Cries, Pion continues to explore uh, common themes of alienation, exploitation, uh, and the unseen forces that shape our lives. Uh, her work not only offers a window into the dark heart and soul of modern Korea, but also, I think, speaks to universal human fears and anxieties, uh, making her stories resonate with readers uh, in Korea and around the world. Right, so another work by Pyon Young. Yes. She's mm-hmm. become a, a regular that we feature here on Korea Book Right, Club. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, as you said, we've pretty much, I think, uh, covered all of her, <laughs> think, her works, yes. her translated works. Anyway, there seems to be quite a collection of her translated works piling up now. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this is the latest one. Tell us more. What's the premise of The Owl Cries? Okay, so fantastic uh, setup for, for this novel. So the story takes place in a small, remote town next to an enormous uh, forest. So a small Korean town, remote location. Uh, and for decades, this entire town has relied on the logging industry and a research institute to support the local economy. However, the research institute has uh, recently relocated and some restrictions have been placed on uh, the logging industry. And this has led to a significant downturn in the local economy. Uh, at the story's beginning, we're introduced to Insu, uh, who has been appointed to the role of park ranger for the forest during the off-season. Insu is a recovering alcoholic uh, with his own uh, dark uh, past and, and uh, some uh, mistakes lurking in his uh, uh, in his past before he moved to this, this town. Uh, one day, Insu is visited by a lawyer who claims to be looking for his older brother who has apparently disappeared. The lawyer says his older brother was Insu's pre- predecessor in the park ranger position. Insu doesn't know anything about this. Uh, and the first section of the book follows this out-of-town uh, lawyer uh, as he tries to investigate his brother's disappearance the small town locals and the long term residents are reluctant to help and it seems that something is not quite right in this uh, sleepy uh, remote town mm. so what has happened to the missing park ranger, why are the locals so scared uh, and just you know what is, uh, what is going on so Insu and the lawyer are eventually compelled to investigate and uh, uncover the, the mystery but perhaps things aren't quite as they seem. Insu has his own problems. He's a recovering alcoholic who doesn't trust his own memories. You know, what is real uh, and what is an alcohol-induced or alcohol uh, withdrawal-induced hallucination? And uh, Pyon uses these elements to spin a dark uh, and existential mystery about debt, uh, addiction and exploitation. It's a typically bleak and chilling story, uh, but it does it remains gripping until yeah, it's a very uh, despair laden conclusion. Right, so it sounds like a slow burn initially, maybe, but then okay. has quite mm-hmm. a crescendo. Yeah, which I imagine fans of her work will. Uh, uh, be not be disappointed with. So, uh, what sort of themes is Pian looking to explore in this work? Where does uh, the owl cries take us? 
Right. So yeah, Pion does this in most of her books. She's sort of using genre uh, elements to, to talk about, you know, things that are happening in the world. Right. Uh, and so in true Pion fashion, this novel is really about how society is poisonous and destructive. Uh, so if we think of the small town in the story as a microcosm for society as a whole, the point that she is making here, or, or one of the main points she's making becomes clearer. So the structure of the town, uh, you know, the way that the town is set up is designed to manipulate and mislead the people who live there. Everyone is involved in some kind of uh, petty deception or scheme or scam uh, to get an edge over the other uh, people around them. Uh, And someone is using debt to trap everybody uh, in this town. So uh, all of the people are bound together by the evil things that they've done. Uh, There's only one person in the town who can extract enough wealth from everybody else uh, to sit at the top of the society. Uh, Everyone jealously guards the small advantages that they have. And many are so inebriated that they don't know what reality is. Uh, And the wealth generated by the local resources, by uh, by the massive forest, that's all funneled away from the local area. And then we have families that are destroyed by alcohol. Uh, there's every example of work in, in, in the town is unfulfilling and on and on and on. And these are familiar themes and ideas that Pion often explores. Pion sees modern society as a force that leads to atomization, where everyone is alienated and lonely. Uh, and many of Pion's characters find themselves isolated by their own psychological barriers and the soci- societal uh, forces around them. And what she does does in her other novels and in this novel she shows how this isolation affects the the psyche of people and how this then affects their interactions with other people and so what she's doing is she's exploring the you know the psychological complexities of her characters you know, their fears and desires the darker aspects of the human mind uh, and how, how this is influenced uh, by the society that they live in. Right. It seems clear to me that the intensity that Pian is known for is very much evident in this work as well. Uh, but I do find the setting very interesting, the small remote town. As soon as you said it, it reminded me of something like Twin Peaks I knew you were or say that. Fargo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so right. how does the setting contribute then to the novel's atmosphere and themes? Right, yeah. So tw- Twin Peaks and, and uh, Fargo are great uh, examples for thinking of how the, what this, the atmosphere of this story. So the setting is, is fantastic and in, in this book, so uh, we have the small, small remote town enveloped by this, you know, enigmatic forest, and this is cr- crucial for the the novel's haunting uh, atmosphere. So this setting, this this forest, this this dark, intimidating forest, it's not merely just a backdrop for this uh, sort of uh, thriller-like mystery. It's a living, breathing entity that mirrors the characters their own conflicts and their own emotional turmoil. So you have this eerie uh, silence of the town and this unsettling owl imagery uh, and this just amplifies the sense of unease and foreboding that permeates the whole story from beginning to end. So it's as if this land, it's a, a physical manifestation of the villagers' fears and the forest also it, it kind of acts as a boundary between the known uh, and the unknown, the seen and the unseen and this also reflects especially Insu's journey into the, the sort of depths of his uh, uh, tormented uh, psyche and so you have this kind of liminal space uh, 
and then and Pion uses this to sort of talk about isolation and identity and just uh, fear and despair that we experience. Uh, and and so the setting here it's just is it, just as much a, a meticulously crafted character as Insu or uh, some of the other characters in the story. And it's just central to her exploration of human nature. It's a canvas upon which she paints a a vivid picture of a, a community crumbling at the edges. And I think it's just a great example of her uh, skill at, at sort of uh, uh, weaving together setting and atmosphere and theme. So, Barry, then what are we left with? What can readers learn from their experience with uh, the Al Cries? Right, so uh, it is a typically bleak uh, reading experience from from Pion, but it is a gripping story. It's a deep dive into the complexities of human nature and the way that our the way that we act is sort of constructed or shaped by the society around us. It's rich in psychological depth and cultural uh, insights. Uh, it sort of asks you to co- contemplate like the individual motivations of people, the pressure that they're under from society, uh, and the fine line between right and wrong. I think what we see here is this she, Pyon has a deep understanding of Korean society and just universal human nature uh, and this comes through in some really fascinating moral dilemmas in the story uh, her storytelling here is entertaining it's very introspective and I think it's a, a very compelling blend of uh, sort of specific Korean cultural issues and just uh, universal uh, concerns Right, a great blend to represent Korean literature as well, it sounds like. Well, another compelling work by Pyonhae Young. Once again, it's called The Owl Cries. And that's where we leave it for Korea Book Club this week. Barry, thank you once again, and we'll see you next time. OK, take care. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Before we go, though, we have enough time today to remind our listeners the various ways you can listen to our show. You can go on our website, as well as our apps, KBS Kong, KBS World Radio and KBS World Radio On Air. And you can also listen to KBS World Radio on shortwave in various regions. For details or frequencies, check out our website, world.kbs.co.kr. You can also catch all our previous episodes via our podcast available on our website or various popular podcast platforms. Just search for KBS Career 24. And we also have a looped YouTube live stream of KBS World Radio's English language service. Look for KBS World English on YouTube. And that's that. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so I hope you can join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. The people I love by Chong Ho Sung. 나는 그늘이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 그늘을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 한 그루 나무의 그늘이 된 사람을 사랑한다. I do not love people who have no shadows. I do not love people who do not love shadows. I love people who have become the shade beneath a tree. 햇빛도 그늘이 있어야 맑고 눈이 
부시다 나무 그늘에 앉아 나뭇잎 사이로 반짝이는 햇살을 바라보면 세상은 그 얼마나 아름다운가 Sunlight too needs shade to shine bright and dazzle the eyes Sitting in the shade of a tree and watching the sunlight sparkling between the leaves How beautiful the world is then 눈물이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 눈물을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다. 나는 한 방울 눈물이 든 사람을 사랑한다. I do not love people who have no tears. I do not love people who do not love tears. I love people who have become one teardrop. 기쁨도 눈물이 없으면 기쁨이 아니다. 사랑도 눈물 없는 사랑이 어디 있는가? 나무 그늘에 앉아 다른 사람의 눈물을 닦아주는 사람의 모습은 그 얼마나 고요한 아름다움인가 Joy too is no joy without tears And is there ever love without tears The sight of someone sitting in the shade of a tree Wiping away another's tears What serene beauty that is 